Hi, and welcome to the New Dawn podcast. I'm your host, Dawn Lisht. For those of you who are new to this podcast or have been listening for a while, I'm a relationship coach and I specialize in creating healthy connections, intimacy and love, focusing first and foremost on the most important relationship, which is the one between you and you. My role is to help clarify and create awareness and foster a deep connection of love and understanding for yourself and then spread that into every single one of your connections with those that you love. In this week's episode, I'm interviewing Sarah Ibrahim, who is a recovery coach, and she openly shares her struggle with cocaine addiction, being a single parent, and how she landed on her feet to take back control of her life and turn it into something meaningful to help others. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. I also have a couple of announcements to make. I currently have three spots available for the eight-week Essence of You coaching one-on-one. So if you want to find out more about that, check out my website at www.dawnlush.com. And then for those of you who are wanting a much deeper, richer, more nurturing experience for something that you really want to change and break patterns for creating relationships that you love for creating a life that you love or if you're feeling lost and overwhelmed or you just know that you need to change in direction and you need some support then I have a six-month coaching program that is specifically for you, unique and bespoke to you, where we really delve deep and explore and expand and come out the other side completely feeling more connected to yourself, more loving, more compassionate, but clearer and ready to implement all that you desire into your life. For any more information about either of those, just reach out to me at my website, Uh, And then lastly, from the middle of April, after the Easter holidays, I'm going to be launching a group coaching program. And I'm not going to say too much about it right now because I'm still tweaking it and bringing it together. But what I have decided to do this time and what I have been doing is I wanted to include you into my research and the course creation. So I've been reaching out to, it will be about 20 women so far, to collect their stories, their experiences, their insights, um, where they are right now, where they want to be, and their journey around loving themselves, accepting themselves, boundaries, their inner critic, all sorts of aspects to do with creating a deeply healthy and loving connection with ourselves. And these stories, these experiences are going to form part of the content um, and is going to take it to a whole new level. I am blown away by the conversations I've been having with these women. I feel so connected and so resonant with what they're sharing. Um, And honestly, I think it's one of the most profound experiences that I've been through through course creation because it now has even bigger, deeper meaning um, than me just creating something from my own experience. It now involves each of you as well. So I can't wait to share that with you. There's going to be more information about that as it comes along. I'm just letting it percolate a little bit, letting these stories and experiences settle within me. And then I will share it with you. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sarah. 
And I am sending you so much love for wherever you find yourself today. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for joining me today on our podcast. Um, Now, before we get started, I just wanted to say that I came across you on Facebook. And what drew me to you was your honesty, your vulnerability, how you show up and how you're sharing. And and I think whilst there's a lot of people talking about the topic that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, what I really liked was how approachable you made it seem <clears throat> and how approachable you came across as in terms of your message and um, your guidance, your inspiration, your thoughts. So whatever it is that you're doing, however it is that you're showing up, I loved it and is part of the reason why we're here today. So welcome, Sarah. Bless you. What an intro. I really appreciate that, Dawn, because, you know, like when you're on a journey like this, it can be lonely despite the number of people that are on the same journey. And by that, what I mean is like as an entrepreneur and also as a person in recovery, like, you know, we've each got our different ways of approaching things. And especially as an entrepreneur, you can put stuff out there and we tend to measure things in human metrics, don't we? Like how many people have liked this? How many people have commented when actually due to the the subject of what I'm talking about, a lot of people don't want to raise their hand and be seen to say, yeah, this resonates with me. And so quite often I have what we call crickets on my social media posts. And I'm like, hmm, does anybody really care about this? Like, is this really landing? And then somebody like you comes along and goes, hey, do you know what? This is awesome. And I'm like, oh, it's making a rain because it just makes sense of so much of my past. So I'm really grateful to you for, for say, saying that. Thank you. So Sarah, you're a recovery coach, which in itself comes with a story, uh, a reason for being, a reason that you're here today doing what you're doing. So can you share a little bit about where you've come from, why a recovery coach, and we'll go from there. (laughs) This is not going to be a short story, Dawn, you know that, right? Yeah, no, it's good. (laughs) Okay, so I am now a qualified recovery coach. I qualified in December last year, which is very exciting, and you will understand the reason why in just a moment. So my journey has been such that as a child, I was raised with um, a Christian mum and a Muslim father who was from Egypt. And so that had its own complexities, as you might imagine. Um, my dad was not a practicing Muslim and my mum only found Christianity when she had me, funny enough. Um, but nevertheless, she was devout. And so this caused untold kind of problems because she would want to take us to church and he would not want us to go to church. He didn't want to take us to the mosque. He didn't want us to go to church. So there would be kind of stand-up rows in the street. And he was an alcoholic, actually, and he was a chef. So he would leave the house very early in the mornings and return kind of late at night after the pub, which, you know, led to volatility and arguments indoors. And so, you know, throughout my childhood, I heard, if you call mummy scream, if you hear mummy screaming, dial 999. And that has an impact on a small girl, right? So... My dad would drive us to the pub and he would give us KFC in the back of the car, park us in the car park with the pub, go in, get tanked up and drive us home. You know, and we loved it. Like me and my sister, she's two years younger than me. We loved it. We thought this was great. But, you know, in hindsight, I'm just like, hmm. What did you love about it? What do you remember loving about it? Just 
the fact that he was, you know, taking us somewhere, even though we sat in the car and he would pop out every now and again and bring us a bottle of Coke or whatever, you know, but we loved the whole KFC and, you know, it was like a treat for us, right? <laughs> You'd never wow, that is that. a really big reframe right there, Sarah. How old were you? Probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight, you know, in that region. Um, so isn't that amazing that even at that age, you and your sister are both trying to make the most of the experience that you're having, like yeah. the glass is half full or, yeah. you know, at least we get to spend some time with daddy. Well, yeah, and sometimes he'd let us come inside and we'd, you know, whiz the pool balls around, <laughs> you know, and this was all fun and his friends would come out and bring us crisps and whatever, you know. So we were kind of made a fuss of even though we were dumped outside while he got pissed, basically. Um, but anyhow... Throughout my childhood, my dad would vanish to Egypt and he would go for six months at a time. Now, he would say to me he was going for two weeks and daddy wouldn't come back after two weeks. And, you know, little Sarah was just like, where's my dad? Um, And I would say to him on the phone, you know, I wouldn't come home. And he'd be like, I'm coming. And he wouldn't come. And so very, very early on in my life, this story started to form, which was, you're not important. doesn't matter what you want. You have to just put up with shit, Right. And this continued kind of up to my teens. And then, you know, my granddad was a really important figure in my life. He would pick us up from school and whatever. This was my mum's dad. Um, And we were very close to him. Again, we used to love going to his house and raiding his fridge because he would have loads of chocolates in there. You know, grandparents are special, right? Um, And then he died. He died when I was nine. And so, again, this story was reinforced. You're not important. It doesn't matter what you want, right? you know he's left me he's left me my dad keeps leaving me now my granddad's left me like what's going on here and I was really really angry because I was just like this is not fair and I remember very clearly thinking that at nine years old like this is not fair um and then into my teens I started to become a bit of a rebel child um you know smoking and drinking and dabbling in drugs and all of the things just I guess it was a cry for attention um which I wasn't getting you know and so we found out when I was about 15 that my dad had actually married somebody else on one of these trips back home to Egypt. Um, and, you know, under Islamic law, they were allowed four wives. Well, here it's bigger me, obviously. And so my mum turfed him out, but she loved him. So she was never able to divorce him. And, you know, that then had its own complexities as well. And my dad was this person that you just didn't, you didn't ask him stuff. Okay. Like, you know, it's nothing to do with you. You don't ask me. Um, and so we just had to kind of get on with it. And um, so my sister didn't speak to him then for a year. She was 13 or something at the time. And I loved my dad. He was my friend, you know. And so at this time, he would take me to the pub and he would buy me lots of Budweiser. And, you know, he would give me 20 pounds here and there. And I would turn up at the pub in my school uniform at 15 years old and get absolutely smashed um, and go home with this 20 quid in my pocket. And I thought it was great, you know, like, my dad would let me drink and he would let me smoke and all of the things. In hindsight, again, I realised he was just trying to buy me, right, um, to make up for the poor parenting that he had exhibited over the years. Now, let me say at this point, I recognise that he was doing his best with what he had. I have no animosity towards him. You know, I've got nothing bad to say about him in that sense. When I was 17, he died, right? He died. Oh, and my God. That was it. Just secured the abandonment piece for me. That was it signed, sealed and delivered. He kept leaving me through my childhood. My granddad died and left me. He kept leaving me through my teens. He married somebody else and then he died. And that was it. And from that day, I learned to abandon myself again and again, again and again, because that's how Sarah gets treated. 
Do you think though that the that ability or that predisposition to abandon yourself actually happened way 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 earlier and even before um your dad was to and from Egypt even before your granddad died was there a culture within your family that we don't talk about stuff we don't talk about feelings we don't really talk about what's really going on was there an was there anything like that that was kind of setting the scene for these kind of behaviours to install themselves later? That's a very good question, Dawn. Well, um, so the answer to that is that my mum thinks of herself as approachable, and she is, so long as the content of what you have to say is in line with her beliefs and her thinking and her perception. Otherwise, it just, you know, it doesn't go over well. And I've learned very early on that you know, it's not safe. It's not safe to express my beliefs. It's not safe to express my desires. It's not safe to be me, um, essentially. You know, I'm too emotional. Like, I'm always crying. Um, and so I shut myself down again and again. And, you know, when my dad died, I wasn't able to talk to my family about it because it was too close to home. I would talk about it till the cows come home with my friends, especially when I was off my face, which is the next part of the story. But I wasn't able to, to speak to my family about it. And and that was on me that wasn't because they weren't approachable it was just because I found it too difficult right mm, um, hang on a second go on uh I, I mean obviously this is your experience and your story but you know in my experience of these these situations it takes two to tango so it might be on you but also recognizing that um the tools that we learn as adults are the ones that we learn as children and therefore um if you're not it, within your family and your situation if there's not the ability to communicate which in my experience 99% of families do not learn or do not have the tools to communicate clearly um as you get older it doesn't it's not because you're too emotional it's not because you're too any of these things it's probably because nobody has really learned how to communicate and um connect with each other yeah and I agree with that to an extent for sure because like I guess I just felt like I didn't want to be vulnerable in front of them because I was going to be attacked, you know, and shut down in this way. You're too emotional. And what you're saying doesn't make sense. Your dad wasn't this great person that you've made him out to be or whatever. And I wasn't ready to hear it. I didn't want to hear it, you know. And I had alienated myself to an extent from the family. At that point, I'd been arrested for shoplifting. I'd been caught sleeping around. I had, you know, been drinking. I'd run away, all of the things. So I didn't really have that relationship with my with my sister. She was 15. I absolutely didn't have that relationship with her at that point. Um, and she'd kind of borne the brunt of my rebellious behaviour through her teens, bless her. And then my younger brother and sister were a lot behind us. So my youngest sister was seven and my brother was nine. And so, you know, I'm not going to talk to them about it, am I? Um, and then my mum, who just lost her husband, you know, and at this point I was just like, I really hated my mum. You know, as far as I was concerned, it was her fault that my dad had kept going to Egypt all the time. It's because she was so fucking annoying, you know. And, and I hadn't realised that I thought that until very recently um but I did and you know she was just a fun police you know I wasn't allowed to do what I wanted and so I wasn't going to come to her with my problems like she was just like this gatekeeper of fun and I didn't want her <laughs> her support or her her love like I just 
wanted to push it all away and just do what I wanted. And actually, Dawn, the truth is, I don't remember a full year, over a full year after that date from when my dad died to now of how I was, who I was with, where I was living, who my friends were, who my boyfriend was. I turned 18 in that time. I've got no recollection whatsoever. Um, none. And I could ask my mum, of course I could, but I don't want to because I just think if my body and my system was able to cope with those memories, I would remember them. Um, but they're tucked away for a reason. And so it's not for me to go pushing on doors that don't need to be opened, you know? And so I'm like, so is, okay is it, it's not because you don't remember that stuff um, because you are high and it is literally no. because on some way, some yeah. coping mechanism has mm. put them away for now. Yeah, absolutely. So from when I was 17, drugs were my friend at that point, but it was only like a little dabble here and there. I'd done a bit of speed and I smoked a bit of weed. Like, it was not a regular thing, whatever. Come the time I was 19, I discovered ecstasy. And this is the start of the decline. So I then spent a good solid 10 years, you know, just raving. And I loved it. And I lived for it. And I would think nothing about popping like five, six, seven pills in a night. I would go for like 24, 48, 72 hours, you know, without sleeping. And Mondays were kind of off the agenda. I lost, I don't know how many jobs in that time at all. Um, but you know what? Because I'm smart, because I was good at what I do, because I can make good money. I didn't worry about it. Like I got sacked from Barclays Wealth one Friday and I walked into a job at Lloyd's TSB head office on the following Monday, you know, like higher paid prestigious jobs. Yeah. Um, because at that time, PAs were in demand. And, you know, I was blessed with this ability to just land on my feet time and time and time again, because I'd had to rely on me my whole life. I'd, I'd put myself in that position where I was going to do this thing on my own. Um and I, you know, ecstasy was an escape of sorts. And I couldn't imagine a day when I would not want to go out on the weekend and so on. At this time, I kept meeting guys who were cokeheads or coke dealers, more accurately. And coke was never something I was really that interested in. It wasn't something I wanted. It wasn't something I would buy. Absolutely not. It wasn't something I even thought about unless it was there in front of me. And if it was there in front of me, well, of course I'm going to do it. I'm a druggie, right? So I first started dabbling in coke when I, by the time I was about 23, maybe before that um and by the time I was 27 I was well and truly hooked this was my poison of choice and everything started to deteriorate from that point um it was already kind of on a decline from my my ecstasy habit but my coke habit was the one that really saw me going into this spiral of self-destruct so how much do you think you were spending at that time on your coke habit uh, I wouldn't even like to say um I like to hazard a guess. I just don't even know. I remember like I was only like £700 a week, like take Wow. Home. Mm. Yeah. And I had no money. I had no money. And that was going somewhere. Mm. And I can't remember. I mean, some of it must have been going on rent. None of it was going on food. I know that. A lot of it was going on cigarettes. Um, a lot of it was going on partying. And, you know, the bulk of it probably was going on coke. Um, so a lot of money, right? Um, so now I'm 27 and I decide, well, you know, what, I'm going to do a degree because that's what you do when you're a cokehead and you're 27. Well, I'm going to do a degree. <laughs> what made you think about doing a degree? Like there must have been something inside of you that maybe said, I want more. I want something different. Yeah, absolutely. So I quit my job at Lloyd's TSB head office. I was like, stuff this. I don't care about arranging meetings for people. I don't even know. I don't even understand what it is that you guys do. And neither do I give a shit. So like, it's got to be more stuff. And I just quit my job. Bear in mind, I've got a raging coke habit. I've got rent to pay, you know, and, and I'm just like, right. And I started working in a bar, right, in Leighton, Stone, East London. And this was where I met 
everybody that loved cake. And this is where I sort of built up my network of, you know, friends to be a delinquent with. And I loved it because it was very handy for somebody like me to consistently have this big selection of people that I could go to and get mashed up with. Um, but I, the reason I had quit my job was because I knew that I wanted to do something. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. But what I did know was that I wasn't going to figure it out while I was sat in that office and coming home just completely drained and my soul was just depleted. Um, and so I quit. And I started working in this bar. And I used to say to people, like, what do you think I should do? Right? And it's so interesting what people come up with. And they, all they know of you is what you present to them. And so, like, people would say things to me, like, why don't you be a croupier at a casino? You know, I never did it, but I never would have thought of it. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, until someone eventually said to me, you should be in hospitality because when you're bubbling, everyone's bubbling with you. And I was like, this is the thing, right? This is the thing. Like, I'd always loved hotels and that concept of, like, home away from home. Like, I'd had these designs on owning a chain of hotels at some point in my past. And so I decided I was going to do events management, right? And I went to the college or wherever it was and and they said, so you can't do this. Um, you know, you don't have the right prerequisite qualifications. Um, you can choose one of these. And so I ended up doing international tourism management. Now, I absolutely fell in love with the topic of tourism. Just I like I find it fascinating about people traveling, like the movement of people across the world and the reasons for doing so, the impact on a destination, all of that stuff. Um, and I was really surprised when I walked out of there with a first class honors degree deal, right? Like when I say I'm blessed, I'm blessed, yeah. Uh, you know, I missed a lot of my whole second year because I was out my face, absolutely out my face. And I just didn't turn up. My boyfriend at the time was working in Malta. And so he would, you know, pay our rent and he left me in the flat. And so I just turned that into a party house. I spent my entire student loan, which was two and a half grand on Coke in two weeks. Um, that went down really, really well. I had all this freedom and this great life, this guy that was looking after me, you know, and he wasn't even there. I didn't have to even have sex with him. You know, he just would look after me. <laughs> great. And um you know and I know and I say that in a really callous way but you know it was a lot deeper than that but this is the facts yeah and so he would pay for me to go on holiday often you know I'd go and I spent six months in more in 2011 and it was awesome and when he was away he would work away quite often when he was away I had everything still at home intact I ran a corner from the pub which was like my living room all my friends knew where I was and so on like I had no time to think about anything right I did this degree and I decided I wanted a job in tourism. Well, we got married. On our way back from our honeymoon, I saw a lady from Thompson on the plane sitting in front of me. This was like the, the tour operator. And I started talking to her and she said, oh, I've got reps in like Aruba and Mauritius and this. And, this. and I was like, I want your job. Like, how did you get your job? She said, it's only taken me eight years to get to this level. Um, and I used to work in a brewery before that. So you really don't need any experience. I started as a holiday rep, she says to me. So I go home. And I applied for a job as a holiday rep. And I got the job as a holiday rep because what Sarah wants, Sarah gets generally. And so gets this job as a holiday rep and I get posted in Menorca, which is one of the Spanish islands, right? So off I go on my merry way. We've been married now like nine months. And he's fully supportive of me because, well, how can he not be? He's worked away for long periods of time over the night, like the six years that we've been together. So bless him. He's fully supportive of me. Well, Dawn, when I got there, I suddenly realised I've made a terrible mistake, right? I suddenly realised I had all of this time to think now. So it was different me being away from him being away because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. And I certainly didn't know any dealers at that point. It only took a couple of weeks. But at that point, I didn't know any. And so I had this straight head on in this foreign country where I don't speak the language with a bunch of teenagers, right? I'm 34 and they're like 18 to 20, <laughs> you know, holiday reps. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm like, okay, right. What am I doing here? I think I've made a mistake. I think I've married the wrong man. And I started thinking, 
don't tell me that's true Sarah and so I didn't say anything about three weeks later I was like shit I think I've made a mistake and I said it to somebody well that was the undoing of me as soon as I said it it started to become real and he was coming to visit me another three weeks later and um for our first wedding anniversary right so we were also looking for a marital home at this time so I packed up all of my stuff in our flat you know it was all ready to go so that he could move us he was going to find us somewhere and he was going to move us while I was away and I was just like oh holy fuck what have I done what am I going to do what's going on here anyway I thought well maybe it's because he's because because we've been apart maybe it'll be all right and he came and it was over right he it was like kissing my brother and I was just like I can't do this well he had found us a house to live hadn't he and it was going to be 300 grand right so not not exactly pocket change and he was going to see this mortgage advisor two days after he left the island right so we're there celebrating our first wedding anniversary I'm dying inside at this point I'm having panic attacks I can't sleep I can't eat all of the things because I know what I need to do and I just can't bring myself to fucking do it Right. And you're denying yourself the the truth of what you're feeling because oh, you're sure. scared of the outcome, scared of what's going to happen. Consequences. Mm-hmm. How am I going to survive? I'm a I'm a cokehead. I'm a raging cokehead. I've got no money. I've never had money in the last like ten years prior to this, or maybe fifteen even at that point. Right. I live with this guy. I've got nowhere to go. I'm in a foreign country. All my stuff is packed up. I've got no way of moving it out. Right. How do I untangle seven years of life? Blah 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 blah. blah. Was there um, ever any point during your thought process that that because you've mentioned this already that you have this ability to be able to just land on your feet did you in that moment think uh it's going to be okay I'm going to be able to land on my feet no I was in full-on panic mode um although intrinsically I knew I did know but all I could see was my pain (laughs) at that moment and so he went home and I had to call him the next day by Skype on one of the world's worst freaking internet connections ever. So I kept dropping the call and telling him that our marriage was over. So that went down really, really well. All of my friends at home had no idea that that was coming. Not one person called me. Not one person called me. They saw this guy who's like, you know, he's a real character and he's very, very popular. And they saw him be taken down by me. And so everybody made up their own story she must be cheating on him she's this she's that you know I was away my friends were drinking with him nobody called me right and I was just like wow and so he's on the phone feeding me with like everybody hates you everybody hates you they know what you've done blah 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 and I was just like oh my god so now I'm a holiday rep right I'm supposed to be all like happy happy joy joy you know and actually I I, I look like shit because I can't sleep I can't eat I can't think I can't anything I'm <laughs> But it was the best thing for me because it was like out of sight, out of mind. So I had those six months to heal, basically, right? It was hard. It was really, really hard. And by the end of those six months, you know, we were talking again. Um, and actually, we were really friendly. And he was like, you know, look, I'm defending you. People are saying all sorts of things. And I'm telling them, look, all she's done is tell the truth. He said, I hate how you've done it. But all you've done is tell the truth. And I was like, actually, that was the hardest truth that I've ever had to share or deliver um so thank you for recognizing that you know what I mean and I by that point I did know that I was going to land on my feet I found somewhere to live um, when I came back to the UK and got a job got my old job back at the NHS um and so you know I really am blessed in that sense I just somehow everything always works out for me so I came back home worked and just messed about a bit I was going on three-day benders very very regularly and 
you know, just not really showing up for work, making up all sorts of stories about why I wasn't making or turning up for work and all of this stuff. And, you know, it was really, I was very lonely actually at that point, which I didn't realise. Um, and I would do anything to avoid being on my own door. I just couldn't handle the idea of being indoors. So even if it was going to the pub on my own, that's what I would do. I didn't want to be alone with my thoughts. Now, the most surprising thing happened to me at this point, right, which is that a year and a half after the uh, breakup, it suddenly hit me like a freaking bus. I was just like, I was devastated. I was grieving, you know, and I was went into this kind of depression, um, although it wasn't kind of that severe, but I was just, I was having panic attacks on the train on the way to work. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, this was my idea. I don't regret it. It's done and dusted. This was a year and a half ago. Like, what, hello? Um, and I was just suddenly in this place where I was just like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to cope. I've got all these feelings that I can't identify or navigate or, or like. And so that was just sending me out even more into the whole drug scene. Do you I think that actually there might have been a compound experience there? It wasn't just about your ex-husband, but it was actually about a lot of feelings coming to the surface about all sorts of things. Um and then that feeling overwhelming because when I was having panic attacks back in 2001, they started immediately after 9-11 and I was, I watched in real time on TV. Oh, I did. Or you did. Yeah. So, so you'll know that, you know, if you're not feeling really, really solid, that kind of experience, even for the most solid of people is going to rattle you and that was the catalyst for me starting to have panic attacks but in hindsight so that's 22 years ago that wasn't the cause it was like the catalyst but actually there was so many other things underlying that which were um I didn't feel strong and secure in myself anyway I didn't know how to handle or deal with my own feelings and emotions my granddad had died I felt misunderstood I felt isolated and lonely I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know who I was. You know, the, it was like the perfect storm. Yeah. And then this just pushed me over the edge. Yeah. Would you say that that resonates with you for your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't just what was on the face of it. There was a whole lot more going on. But I was absolutely not in a place where I could understand or unpick that. I didn't know what I know now. And so I just dealt with it the best way that I could, which was just to go out and get smashed. And I would, you know, and I would talk a lot. So it really served a purpose in a way, and I'm absolutely not advocating this as a method of dealing with stuff. But, you know, I was able to have these very deep conversations that I just wasn't able to have when I was had a straight head on. You know, I found them too painful. I found them too vulnerable. I found them too, all of the things. And so my divorce, I don't think I would have got through it without coke, to be honest. I mean, I would have. Don't be ridiculous, Sarah. In the way that I did, um, you know, it really did serve its purpose for me at that time. And that just secured the love affair. At this point, I realised that, that coke was the only thing that created stability in my life. Like everything was coming and going. Boyfriends, husband even, money, friends, my health. The whole thing was just a great big shaky house of cards, right? But drugs, well, they was always there for me. Yeah. Drugs was the only stability that I had in my life. I knew what I was getting with drugs. I didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't like the calm downs. I didn't like the, the being broke. I didn't like the fact that my nose could be seen from outer space. And I didn't like the fact that I looked like I died about three years ago. However, I knew what I was getting and it was a sanctuary and it was just for me and nobody could touch me there. I got through that anyway and ended up doing another season abroad. I came back. I had a one night stand. My son was conceived. And I was just like, right, okay, in the last five years, I've been married, divorced, I've worked two seasons abroad, and now I'm pregnant from a one-night stand. Like, you couldn't make this shit up. Um, what is actually going on here? 
And I was horrified, absolutely horrified. I was like, I'm 36, I'm a mess, I'm broke. I'm meant to be going back to Spain in like five months. And now I'm with child. Like, what is this sorcery? Like, somebody tell me this is a fucking joke. Uh, alas, it was not a joke. And I went straight out on a bender. I booked a termination immediately. I was five weeks pregnant at the time. Went straight out on a bender for three days. And when I got straight, I was just suddenly like, okay, you are not the person that can choose partying over a human life. Like, that is just not who you are. You might be a hot fucking mess. You might be a lot of things. But you're not making that decision. Like, that is basically what it would have boiled down to for me. And this is zero judgment on people that have made a decision that way. You know, this isn't the place for that conversation. However, for me, I knew that it was going to boil down to either partying or have the child. And so Chase was conceived. And from that moment, I gave up everything. And it wasn't hard. It wasn't even hard. I loved my child with all I had. I was really hoping he was a boy. He was a boy. And I now I'm 36 years old and I've got a straight head on for the first time in my adult life, Dawn. And I'm pregnant. So I've got all of these hormones whizzing around. So I'm like, this is great. Like, I love it. What have I been doing? I started going to church again. I saved up like two grand. I was like, I've got two grand. I have got two grand. Like, I've never had two grand in my life. You know, and I was thrilled. And I was never going back. Absolutely no way. La, la, la. I believe my own shit at this point, right? So my child was born. I was not breastfeeding. Three months later, I went to a friend's house. She was like, shall we get some? I was like, yep. And guess what? I started doing coke again. Shock. At this point, I was just like, wow, I'm one of them people that I always wanted to be. Ones that can take it or leave it. Like, it was once a month. And it was okay because I deserved it, right? I'm a single mum. And I'm doing all of this stuff. You know, starting up a new business. And I'm, like, learning lots of things. And, like, it's an escape. It's something just for me, right? That's okay. That's how I justified it to myself. And that was all right for a few months. And then lockdown happened and it nearly finished me off though. And I just, my using increased exponentially. And I'd got to a point where I had like been at it for like 10 days on the spin um, and done like 500 quid. I didn't have six pounds to buy my son a pair of pajamas in Primark. And yeah, I'd done 500 quid on Coke. And I was just like, you're sick. There's something wrong with you. You don't deserve to be a mum. Like, do you want your son to wake up one morning and come in and you're dead in your bed and then he's got no mummy and no daddy you need to sort your fucking shit out girlfriend like pronto um I was saying to my friend like oh you know I need to do something about this and what I meant was I need to stop my nose from running I need to stop being so tired I absolutely did not mean I need to stop doing drugs right I didn't want to why would I want to they were my friend they were the only thing that made me happy they were the only thing that I knew where I was with <laughs> the only thing that was just for me everything else was for everyone else and so I just was really I hadn't told my friends either like the level of my using because well they would think that I wanted to stop and I didn't want to stop <laughs> like no thank you I don't need to listen to you like trying to guide me onto the right path when I'm so firmly on this wrong path that I'm quite enjoying thank you very much um, and so I just struggled and fought this silent battle for a really really long time and then on the end of this 10-day bender, a friend of my mate, as I said, had that conversation with him, went to his house. He was like, should we get some? I was like, yep, of course we should. And I looked at this coat and I was just like, I don't even want this. I don't even want this. And furthermore, I don't think I can actually even get it up my nose. It's so blocked. So I then found myself stationed over the kettle, which I had just boiled, with a towel over my head, steaming my nose with the sole intention of getting this one line up there that I don't even want. And in that moment, I was so horrified with myself but I never did it again. And I was just like, nobody was more surprised than me that day. Don't get me wrong. I still did that one line. 
But nobody was more surprised than me when that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I'd only been saying it that morning, knowing that I didn't really mean it the same like I'd never ever meant it. And I gave up. Four days later, I joined a coaching program. I met a guy called Dante Killian, who's freaking amazing. And him and his wife are like powerhouses, Vicky and Dante Killian. They're incredible. And I joined their program and it was going to be two grand. And I was like, that's a two grand. Are you crazy? Two grand. What are you on about? Um, But I thought, you know what? If I can spend two grand on Coke, I can spend two grand on self-development, right? And so I committed to this program. had no idea how I was going to pay for it. First bit of work we did was around finding your purpose, right? And I was like, at this point, I'm a life coach. And I was like, why am I finding my purpose? I know what my purpose is. I help other people to find their purpose, in fact. But because I paid two grand for this program, I thought, well, just do the work, Sarah. And I spent ages, ages, like pondering over this thing and tweaking it and all the rest of it. And I came up with this really beautiful statement about I help da-da-da with da-da-da. And I read it and I was like, and that's a complete fucking lie, right? <laughs> Six hours of work to come up with a complete lie. Because what I realised then was that it didn't say anything about the fact that I felt called to help others that were struggling fighting this silent battle. It didn't say anything about the fact that I knew that I needed to share my story because it had so much power that can help other people. It didn't say anything about the fact that people are dying all over the world from various addictions, feeling stuck in their own lives by their own thoughts and their own actions. And I know that I can help them. Didn't mention any of that. And so I found my coach and I was like, Vic, I've realised this thing. And she's like, right. And she's very much that person that would just let me get to my own conclusion. And so she was waiting for me to say the next bit, which she knew was going to be. So I need to tell people. <laughs> but clearly she didn't tell me to do it because I would have just said no. And I was like, shit, I need to tell my mum. There's no way for me to do this work undercover. Like, I can't be an undercover, like, drug worker. <laughs> like, how's that going to work? I'm going to need to tell people. At this point, my son was two. And I was just like, what if my son, what if, what if people report, what if someone reports me? What if, who's going to buy coaching from a cokehead? Who's going to trust anything that I say when I've been lying all this time? And so on and so on. But what I realised the narrative was doing was keeping me stuck, was keeping me small, and it was keeping me prisoner. And I didn't want to be in that prison anymore. And I just thought, you know what, even if all of this comes to pass, even if my son gets taken from me, nothing will be worse than living another day that is a lie. Nothing will be worse than staying shackled in this coke prison by design, right? I want out, I'm getting out. And I came home and I told my mum immediately. Bless her, she took it really well. Um, You know, I live with her. So she had an idea, but had no idea how bad it was. And a few weeks later, I told the entire world on Facebook. And this has been the catalyst for where I am now, right? So I did this very snotty, very sweary production on Facebook, which is pinned to my profile, if anyone's interested in watching it. And it's the intention of it was simply to hold myself to this high level of accountability because I thought if the world is watching, I can't fall off the wagon so easily. And 3,000 people viewed that video to date. Now, I never, ever could have anticipated the reach of it. But what happened on the back of that was that I sold 10 grand of coaching, which I had absolutely not achieved in the previous two years. I've been struggling and struggling. And I was like, holy cow, how's this happened? Fortunately, I hadn't done that before because I would have just spent the money on coke, let's be real. All of a sudden, only my truth unlocked so much in me and helped the world to see me for who I really was. And yeah, I was scared. I was shit scared. Um, But I knew that by taking this action that I was going to find it harder to veer off the path that I chose for myself. And so on the back of that live, so many people reached out to me and said oh my god how did you do it oh my god how can I this and sharing their problems with me and I was just like oh my god now people think I know what I'm talking about and I don't I only know my own story like people think I'm an expert and I'm not I don't know anything 
I've since come to realize, well, hey, 20 years of lived experience is not nothing, yeah? Like what I can give you as support is different from what a doctor can give you because I've been there, yeah? And I just recovered on my own for eight months. I wasn't plugged into any recovery communities, anything like that, just literally sharing my story through social media and so on. I discovered the Recovery Coach Academy in December of that year, which was 2021. And I trained and qualified as a recovery coach last year, which is awesome. I started up my podcast, Diary of a Cocaine Addict. And, you know, just really suddenly had this platform where, I don't know, people listen to me, Dawn, which still surprises me. I'm just like, I spent so many years chatting shit that it really surprises me that I'm able to communicate with people on a level that resonates that makes a difference that turns their lives around like somebody messaged me the other day and said Terry you've inspired me to give up opiates I'm saying one day sober and I was just like oh my god you know literally it hit me in the heart when people are just like you you did that you know and it's not that I did it she's the one that did it but I inspired it and somebody else messaged me yesterday with the same kind of a story like you show me if you can do it that I can do it and this is why I'm so committed to this path this is why I'm so determined to keep sharing my recovery story and yes it's controversial yes it doesn't always go down well but I will not be silenced I will not be kept quiet by society I will not be kept shackled to this addiction that is not mine anymore and that is why I do what I do and that is the end of the story (laughs) 